As we pray this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 116, where we read these words, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. Father, we do call upon you this morning because you are our only hope. You are the source of our life and strength. You are the creator, the omnipresent one who is here with us this morning. As you have promised in your word, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. And so we rest in your presence and in the work that you will do in our lives today. It is by your word that we are washed, that we are cleansed, that we are strengthened, that we are given the light for the path that is before us. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, I ask that you will bless as the word is proclaimed in, in the service this morning, in the services remaining, and in the uh, other classes. And through the city of Reading and around the world, I ask, Lord, that many will be drawn to you as your word is proclaimed and as Christ is exalted. We submit to your authority and to your lordship in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you turn to the first chapter of Ruth, I'd like to read verses 1 through 5. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. And the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malan and Kilian died, and the woman, the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Well, as we noted last week, we have just worked through the book of Judges, which almost oozes <laughs> with blood and catastrophe as we read through that particular book this morning, or, or as we did over the past almost a year. It took us, Dr. Walmart was telling me the other day, about 10 months, was it, or 11 months, something like that for us to work through the book of Judges. As we come to the book of Ruth, it's sort of like a ray of sunshine <laughs> coming through the dark clouds. We talked last week about the background of the book of Ruth, and we saw that even as the first verse mentions here that it occurred, or the story occurs, during the days of the judges. So it's during that era of darkness, as I termed it last week, sort of a dark age in Israel, that you have this gemstone, this, this brilliant diamond sort of glittering forth out of the darkness of the story of the book of Ruth. And what it does, I think, and I tried to highlight this last time, is as you're looking at this, this vast uh, scope of tragedy that took place over a couple hundred years in the history of Israel, as you kind of dip down through the layers of all the blood and, and vileness and, and violence, you, you come down at, to the individual lives of individuals and, and you discover, of course, that uh, there is a beauty there, that, that God was at work even in the midst of all that tragedy. God was at work. It doesn't sound like it so much as we get off to these first verses here in the chapter, of course. The first five verses here, uh, we have a sad account, a sad account of 
the personal hardship and the heartache of six individuals. Now we're talk not talking about tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands as we were through the book of Judges. We're focusing on six individuals. The story begins in the small town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a city of no particular significance in those days. It was simply one of hundreds of similar villages scattered through the land at that particular time. But you and I, of course, looking back with hindsight, know that that village would, within a short period of time, become famous as the birthplace of David. And then a thousand years later, it would become internationally famous as the birthplace of the son of David, of the Messiah. But at this particular moment in time, Bethlehem is of no great consequence. It even has to be identified as Bethlehem in Judah to distinguish it from other Bethlehems that existed at that particular time, particularly up in Zebulon in the north. One of the strange contrasts we see in these first verses is that there was famine in the house of bread, which is the meaning of the word Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's famine in the house of bread. <laughs> Seems like an oxymoron as you uh, look at that. God had specifically promised, and we've seen this when we went through the life of Moses and we touched on passages of promise in Deuteronomy, and we'll even read one of them here in a moment. God had specifically promised that he would make the land of Canaan fruitful for his people on one condition, that they would remain obedient to him that they would hear his words and they would walk in obedience and he promised them that he would grant to them a fruitful land and they would never have famine and they would never have hunger. Let me read back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. There are many passages of promise in the Pentateuch, but I'd like to read in Deuteronomy 11 <clears throat> beginning at verse 13. And it shall come about if, notice the condition, if, you listen obediently to my commands, commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, and that, that he will give <clears throat> rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil, and he will give grass for your, in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Beware lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain <clears throat> and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So that had been made very clear to Israel, uh, just as God has made the truth very clear to us uh, through the fullness of the account of Scripture. And so the people knew that if they walked with the Lord, they heard his voice, they were obedient to him, and they rejected the pagan gods, that God would always be sure that there was grass in the field, that the olive tree fruited, the vine fruited, that the grain grew, and they would always have plenty. As it would later say in the book of Kings, every man sat in peace under his fig tree and under his vine. But it was not to be so because during the period of the Judges, you will remember, and let me make a couple of quotations from the book of Judges, which we read relatively frequently, and the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals, or every one did that which was right in his own eyes. Repeated over and over again through the book of Judges. 
And so we know they, they did not carry out their side of the, of the contract, you might say. They did not fulfill their side of the condition, and therefore God brought this particular famine, as well as, of course, the many invasions that we read about in the book of Judges. Here we have the story of how a righteous family was negatively impacted by the judgment that God brought upon his nation for its apostasy. Now you and I, I think, remember that when Israel was in Egypt and God brought judgment on Egypt, you remember the scripture said, but in the land of Canaan, the light, you know, it, the, the daylight shone when it was darkness in the rest of Egypt, that there were not the grasshoppers, there were not the frogs. God preserved, God put an umbrella over the land of Goshen and preserved his people during that time of judgment on Egypt. But as we look at this particular judgment, which occurs 150 or so years later, we discover that even his faithful people would experience some of the hardship that came about as a consequence of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. I think, of course, that speaks to us that as if God is forced to bring judgment on the land of the United States in the decades ahead, that uh, you and I will probably experience some of that in the sense that the discipline that he brings upon the nation as a whole will probably impact the population as a whole. Because the famine was obviously very serious, Elimelech took his wife and his two sons to Moab, where apparently there was food. It seems to me rather unlikely that Elimelech would just one day get up and say, well, Naomi and Malan and Kilian, we're moving to Moab. You know, just out of the blue, all by himself, thinks of going to Moab. Probably not. The scripture makes no comment of others going, but I don't think this was a solitary exodus. There were probably others who went to Moab and maybe other lands also to flee the famine. Those that went to, uh, over to Moab may have gone before, and the word may have come back, that there is bread in Moab. And so Elimelech decides to take his family over there to Moab also. Now, I put the map up here this morning. We won't generally need the map because the whole story, after you get through the first chapter, occurs right here in the region right around Bethlehem. But it starts here at Bethlehem. And the family, in order to move from Bethlehem, because of the existence of this large body of water here, they cannot just go straight across to Moab, which is over here. You don't swim the Dead Sea. Well, I suppose it's not totally impossible, but it's not a good place to do long-distance swimming. It is the saltiest major body of water on the planet, surface of the planet. You know, it's 28% salts. It's even more than that now because the sea is drying up. It's shrinking. Uh, so what had to happen was they had to go north towards Jerusalem, down towards Jericho, across the Jer Jordan Valley, and up the eastern escarpment to the King's Highway, and then down the King's Highway across the Arnon, which is the river right here, which is the northern border of Moab, and then cross the Arnon into Moab. We are not told where in Moab they dwelt but they had to travel across to here. So as you, as you think about that journey, if you've never been to the land, you may not be able to picture this. But from Bethlehem to Jerusalem is five, six miles, and, and you're on the ridge route, and the change in elevation is relatively modest. But as you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you drop down the western escarpment, 
In Jerusalem, you're roughly 25, 2600 feet above sea level. At Jericho, you're 900 feet below sea level. So you're dropping about 3,500 feet in elevation from Jerusalem to Jericho. So as you make the journey down from Jerusalem towards Jericho, you're dropping down about 3,500 feet. And then as you cross the Jordan Valley, you drop a little bit more down actually to the river level, which where they would have crossed would be probably at least 1,200 feet below sea level. And from there, they had to climb the eastern escarpment up to the King's Highway, which was a highway that connected the cities along this side of the uh, Jordan River. You're climbing to an elevation of about 4,000 feet above, no, about 3,000 feet above sea level at the King's Highway. So you're dropping 3,500 feet, you're climbing 4,000 feet up, and then you're traveling south along the ridge route to cross the Arnon River and to enter the land of Moab. So what we're talking about here is a journey which, of course, if you had yourself a little light plane, you'd make it in, in just a few minutes. One of the things that you really discover when you visit the land of Israel is places are, compared to California, places are pretty close together. You know, The whole land of Israel is only about twice the size of Shasta County. So it's you know, not a big land. But this journey would have been a journey of roughly 80 to 100 miles, depending how far into Moab they went. A journey of the ruggedness of terrain which I described, which would mean that we're talking about probably a week of journeying, about a week of journeying for the family in order to go from Bethlehem into Moab. Once in Moab, how did Elimelech provide for his family? Most of the people who lived in Bethlehem were farmers. And we really understand that as we get back to the second and third chapters and, uh, and finish the book. And the whole thing revolves around the bar barley harvest and later the wheat harvest. So these were very important and logical for the city, which is known as the house of bread, or the house of grain. Well, what is Elimelech going to do in Moab? Well, the scripture does not tell us what he did there. We can assume that maybe he became a sharecropper. Maybe he hired on as a farmhand. Maybe he had enough cash to actually buy a number is not told. But after a few years, Elimelech died. Now provision for the family fell upon the two sons. Now it is my opinion, you can't derive it straight from the scripture here, but it's my opinion that when they made the move from Bethlehem to Moab, Malan and Killian were still probably teenagers because they were yet unmarried. And they will be in the land of Moab for a period of 10 years altogether. So was it five years in the land before Elimelech died? We're not told. But after the period that uh, Elimelech died, the two sons will marry. Now, did they marry before or after Elimelech died? Again, we're not told that in this particular passage of Scripture. But the sequence of the narrative seems to indicate that Elimelech died and then his two sons got married, if you follow the sequence of the, of the narrative itself. So here are these two young men. They marry Moabites. Moabites. Why? Why did they marry Moabites? They are Israelites. Why did they marry Moabites? Well, I think there are one or more possibilities as to why. First of all, it's very probable that there were no marriageable Israelite refugee girls in the area which they could woo or with whom Naomi could bargain in order to arrange a marriage. It's also probable 
that as the famine continued in Israel, they thought, well, we're never going to be able to go back to Judah because of the famine, and who knows how long it will be before the famine's over, and we don't wait forever to get married, so let's marry whoever's at hand. Or, thirdly, it could be that it didn't matter to them that the ladies were Moabites. It could be that Malan and Killian were totally unconcerned about what the nationality of the ladies happened to be. Lastly, certainly not finally, it's possible that they had some hope of financial or social advantage by marrying Moabites. Maybe there was a dowry that came along with either Ruth or Orpah or both, which included some land. That's always a possibility too. We're not told. So we can just, you know, kind of look at the story and think of these, these possibilities. Whatever were the reasons, Malan and Killian married Orpah and Ruth, who were Moabitesses, women of Moab. They were not Israelites. Now, what, what are the meanings of these names? As you well know, as you go through Scripture, most names in Scripture have a meaning. You and I sometimes don't find the meaning of our name until somebody gives us a mug which says, Don means great warrior prince or some other thing. Always means something good, you'll notice. <laughs> you probably never got a mug or a, a card that said your name and said, horse thief of the first order, you know, or something like that. <laughs> But as you look in the Hebrew scripture, you will discover there are names in here which are not particularly a, a blessing for the people, it would seem. But that was not so for Elimelech. Elimelech had a wonderful name. It means God is king. God is king. Elimelech. Naomi. Naomi's name meant graceful, delightful, which is kind of interesting. And we see the play on this as we move into the, the next part of the first chapter, the last part of the first chapter, where she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means not delightful, but bitter because of what happens to her. Malon. Now, we come to the names of the two sons, and we think, why would they name their sons this way? Because Malon means sickly, weak, and Killian means pining, somebody who uh, is wasting away. Now, were those names given because these children were born? And I mean, they had, in, in those days, they had birth defects, just as people have birth defects today. When my sister was born, she was born with major heart problems. She was what was called a blue baby. And so, you know, all right off the bat, you know that there's something going to be wrong with this person through the rest of their lives, especially since there was no medical science to speak of in those days to do anything about it. So were these men both born with some kind of a physical defect or a weak constitution? This seems to be followed through by the fact that you'll notice, as we read in the passage, they got married and died. They didn't last long. They died young. And I don't think it was because they got married that they died. <laughs> I, I think they were simply physically weak individuals. And this is reflected even in their names. Now, when it comes to the names of the two Moabitesses, Orpah and Ruth, both names are very uncertain as to their meanings because they are not Israelite names. They are, of course, Moabitish names, and they seem to have roots more into the Aramaic than they do in uh, Hebrew. It has been tentatively agreed upon by some that Orpah meant youthful or possibly gazelle, leaping across the landscape, you know, kind of deal. Because of the influence of the story, however, some have translated her name as meaning turning the back, you know, 
leaving Naomi as opposed to Ruth who did not. Then the meaning commonly attached to Ruth's name is the name is the meaning that comes right out of the book, which is that of companion. Now that cannot be proven from the root of the word Ruth itself, but that is the way at least the Hebrews have decided to interpret the name. Now, why was there such tragedy so early on in the life of this family? Elimelech, some have argued, died for the reason that he took his family from Bethlehem where he could have trusted God and instead went to a pagan land in which to try to survive. Now, the Moabites were related to the Israelites. Land of Moab down here, immediately north of the land of Edom. And up here is the land of Ammon. Edom, Moab, Ammon. The Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites were all related to the Israelites. You remember, the Edomites were descended from Esau, brother of Jacob. The Moabites were descended from Lot by his eldest daughter through the incest that was committed there after the destruction of Sodom. And Ammon was for Ben-Ami, the other daughter who committed incest with Lot, and two sons were born. So Israel is directly related to the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, and that is why God said to Moses, as Israel was moving around there, you shall not destroy these people. If they will not allow you to pass through the land, you will go around the land. And that's exactly what Israel had to do. They had to go around the land and come in this way, not fighting these people or these people. Although the Moabites, of course, tried to curse Israel through Balaam, you remember. And that brought some real difficult times on Israel. So they are moving over to Moab, to a land of people who are pagans, who worship Chemosh, which was the Moabite version of Baal. Baal, the word Baal or Baal, simply means prince or lord. And it refers to a whole genre, I guess you could say, of deities. Most of them having to do with fertility, having to do with bull worship and, uh, and such things. And, and to which sacrifices were made, even human sacrifices at times were made. So it was a detestable thing to God and should have been a detestable thing to Israel. The extent to which this is significant, you go to, we won't turn there, but if you go to the 48th chapter of Jeremiah, and the whole 48th chapter of Jeremiah is a prophecy against Moab. But it's a prophecy against Moab which has a little light at the end of the tunnel because when you get through all of that, God says, but then in the end I will raise up Moab again. Some argue that Malan and Killian died young not so much because they were sickly or wasting, but because they chose to remain in Moab. After seeing their father die, they remain in Moab rather than going back to Judah. And on top of that, they marry Moabitesses. I'd like to say that Scripture does not support that position. There is no word in Scripture that indicates that Malan, Killian, and Elimelech died because they had moved to Moab or because the two men married Moabitesses. What about Abraham? When Abraham moved to, to Canaan, things got bad in Canaan, so what did he do? He moved down to Egypt, which was a vile pagan land. Did God slay Abraham for moving down into Egypt? No. I mean, Abraham even allowed Sarah to get carried off into the palace of the Pharaoh. Did God slay Abraham? No. Now, it's probably true 
that somebody who was genuinely a Hebrew of the Hebrews would never have even thought of marrying a Moabitess. They wouldn't want to profane themselves by marrying a pagan. But there was no scriptural prohibition against marrying a Moabite. There were scriptural prohibitions against marrying Canaanites, but the scripture does not prohibit an Israelite from marrying a Moabite. But the scripture does say that if a Moabite is brought into the nation of Judah, he becomes a second-class citizen. Let me read from the 23rd chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 4. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you, or more accurately, Aram Naharim. So, being a Moabite, you could marry an Israelite, but you could not enter the assembly of the Lord. You could not walk with the people and, to, the, to the temple and serve there or worship there. Now, is that an absolute prohibition? No, it is not. We can see this as we read, of course, through the story of Ruth, and as we think about the story of Rahab. I think it, it's premised on the fact that the Moabite continues to be a Moabite in thought and practice, that that Moabite does not become a proselyte to Israel, because you could become a proselyte to Israel from any country in the world, if you so chose. Think about Rahab. Now, Rahab was, she had two strikes against her, remember? She was living in Jericho, and she brought the spies in, and, and when the spies uh, fled, uh, she made them promise to, to protect her. But you remember, she had two strikes against her. First of all, she was a Canaanite, and second of all, she was a harlot. And yet, what do we know about Rahab? Rahab will marry an Israelite by the name of Salmon. And through Rahab will come the lineage of David and of Messiah. So what does that tell us? Why is there this exception? No Israelite shall ever marry a Canaanite except for Rahab. Why should that be true? The exception was made because in God's eyes, it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.7 it is those who are of faith in the God of Israel who are the children of Abraham, not those who carry a DNA which says they're descended from uh, Jacob as opposed to Esau or Moab or Ben-Ami or you know, someone else, Ishmael. Rahab may have been born into a Canaanite family, but she was born again by faith into Abraham's family. And so I think both Rahab and Ruth, therefore, serve as powerful examples of the fact that God's children are not born of the flesh into his family, but they are born of the Spirit. And we know this to be true because it is said in specific terms throughout the New Testament. So what I am emphasizing here is, as I've emphasized before, the truths of the new are always found in the old. The Old Testament is the gospel of, of Yahweh just as the New Testament is the gospel of Jesus Christ.
From the wording of the fourth verse of the first chapter, it seems that by the time Malan and Killian died, they had been living in Moab for about 10 years. Now that's a long time to move from your hometown to some foreign country and, and to settle down there. I don't think when Elimelech first moved his family that he felt like he was going to move to Moab and just become a Moabite. I think he thought, well, you know, the famine's going to be maybe a year, two years, and then we'll get back. But the famine drug on, and the famine drug on, and therefore the family remained for a total of 10 years. Now, as, as, as you read about Ruth, one of the things you discover, I believe, is how many ways she was so like Job. Not Ruth, Naomi. I'm speaking of Naomi. First, as you look at the life of Naomi, famine drove her away from her family and her friends, her home. Now, the immediate family, of course, went, but she left behind all of her other relatives. Then, she ended up living in a pagan, foreign land. So she has to leave her home and her family and her friends, live in a pagan, foreign land. Then her husband dies, and then her sons die, and she's left with her two daughters-in-law, neither of which has born a child. So she has no grandchildren. Now to you and, and to me, we might say, well, you know, that happens a lot, doesn't it? Well, it may be, but this is a big deal to an Israelite of that time. An Israelite woman's worth in that day was almost totally based on her ability to continue the lineage of the family. Even though she had had two sons, the fact that those two sons had no children meant that she was in effect now childless. She was a failure, or at the very least, she was one to be pitied. Now, I don't think any of us delight at the thought of being viewed as a failure or being at least viewed as someone to be pitied. Naomi was a widow. She was childless. She was disgraced and she was impoverished. That adds up to a very, very sad situation for this lady. Naomi was left as a very lonely Israelite woman, far from home in an alien society. And it's not alien as, for example, if you and I were to move to Canada or to move to Mexico where we'd find some cultural differences. It's alien in that the, the nation does not even think of your God as a God. They worship a totally pagan and foreign God. And there is an antipathy between <laughs> Israel and Moab. So you're living in a land where the people don't like you and, and where their culture is, is foreign, their God is foreign. So this was a very, very lonely woman. And so the question that naturally arises is, where is God? Now, we're looking at the whole story, so we say, oh, no problem, I know where God is. But put yourself in Naomi's sandals. You've been living in this land for 10 years, everything's gone wrong, your husband's dead, your, your, your sons are dead, uh, you're, you're left with two childless daughters-in-law, you're impoverished. Where is this God of Israel that you worship? Was God so busy punishing the nation of Israel and then raising up judges in order to save them that he had no time for a hurting, helpless widow? Well, uh, you and I all know the answer to that, don't we? And it is finding these answers in the book of Ruth that makes this such an inspiring and faith-building book. 
Because the answer is God is there. He is imminent. He's not just transcendent up there beyond the farthest uh, planets. He's here right now. And he was with Naomi the whole time. Well, let's look at the next few verses here. <clears throat> Beginning at verse 6 of Ruth. She, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, but we will re surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain, refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The wording of verse 6 in this passage reminds us, or reminds me anyway, of Job's reaction to his trials. Remember the story? After Job had lost everything but his health, he still had his health, but he lost everything else, he said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And source Satan came to the Lord and said, huh, yeah, as long as anybody has health, they can still bless your name, but take away their health and then they'll curse you. And so God gave Satan permission to take away Job's health. And after he'd lost his health, he said, shall we indeed accept good from the Lord and not accept adversity? Those are powerful words, you know. Think about them. They're powerful words. Most of us would say, yeah, we want to, you know, good, that's great. Adversity, well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> not too interested in adversity. In fact, there's a whole movement within the evangelical Rome, realm known as the health and wealth movement that, that does not believe this. They accept, yeah, we should accept good from the Lord, but we should reject adversity. Naomi had lost virtually everything. And still, she acknowledged the providential hand of God in her life and in the lives of her people. She had not rejected her faith in God. Probably through travelers, she had heard that finally there was plentiful food in Judah. So she thought, why should I stay here? I've got family, I've got friends back there. <laughs> they may have forgotten me after 10 years, but I, I think I want to return. What's interesting is she credits the abundance of food in Judah to the blessing of the Lord. She says there's abundant food in Judah because God has blessed my people. Thus, whether the famine was the product of drought or whether the famine was the product of oppression, Naomi believed that the Lord was responsible for bringing it to an end. In that belief, she, has, she, she, is, she is a tremendous example to us. 
as children of God, nothing occurs in our lives by chance. There is no such thing as chance in the life of a Christian. There is no such thing as luck in the life of a Christian, as we commonly think of the word luck. Now, you know, it's very common for us to say good luck. But in saying that to somebody, I don't think we mean really what luck stands for, which is that the chance, the gods are with you and, and chance will favor you. And, and, you know, the ball will fall in the right slot and the roulette wheel for you every time or some such thing. No, there is no such thing as chance in the life of a believer. Everything that happens to us, whether we perceive it as good or whether we perceive it as bad, is brought into our lives by a heavenly Father who loves us with a love beyond our comprehension and has allowed it into our lives for our good and the advancement of His kingdom. Now, it's easy for me to say that if things are going along smoothly. If things are not going along smoothly, we are often tempted, are we not, to cease to believe that. To think, what have I done that God is doing this to me? Or has God forgotten me? Is he off on the other end of the universe and forgotten that I exist? Well, as we look at Naomi, as we look at Ruth, we see, no, he has not gone to another corner of the universe. He is here. He is always here. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us, no matter what the circumstances may seem to be around us. In the case of both Job and Naomi, they could have said, why me, Lord? Of all the people, why me? It's one thing to lose my husband, but now I lose my sons. I'm in this pagan land, and I'm responsible for two daughters-in-law. She could have done what Job's wife suggested to Job. Just cursed God and die. Well, those are encouraging words <laughs> from your helpmeet. I think you all of us, all of us have one time or another have heard of someone who as adversity came upon them and they just felt it was unbearable, they finally said, if this is the way God is going to treat me, I don't want anything to do with him anymore. I think we all have complained to God at one time or another about the things that have come into our lives. And I think it's very important for us to remember he understands. Because Jesus came for one for one purpose that he came was to be tempted in all points as we are tempted. And therefore, he knows what it is to live in the flesh as we do. Years ago, I read a book which kind of helped me a lot. It was written by Betty Elliott's brother, Tom Howard. It was called Christ the Tiger. And in it, he said, go ahead and complain to God. Gripe to God. Pour it all out to God. You're not going to offend him. He's big enough to handle it. You know, he's not going to be uncertain in his sovereignty of the universe because you're griping at him. You know? Poor dog, he knows it anyway. You know? He knows what's in our heart. He knows what's in our mind. And so it's better just to dump it out on him than to try to hide it because we can't or to go around feeling guilty because we think, think bad thoughts about God. Just tell him, God, I don't like you because this is what you've done to me. <laughs> it's really a cathartic <laughs> thing to do. Because God's love for us is not going to be diminished simply because we say, God, I don't like you for this. God loves us anyway, and he will carry us through, and we will discover that in our darkest hour, he loved us as much as he ever loves us, and he was with us at, you know, you know the whole the footprint poem. We've all read it. 
He's carrying us even through the darkest hour. So Naomi is a powerful example, I think, of this to our lives, and we'll look more at this, at her life next time.